Southern blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Need a fix? Come get your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks that time of the month, that time of the month. It's that time of the month. I'm your host and producer, Melanie Vare. This is our second month with our new baby-proof format. (laughs) Basically, I'm due to birth a child very, very soon. And after much thought and after talking to my co-hosts, Pam, Emily, and Chris, uh, we decided that for the sake of the podcast so that we can maintain and continue to bring uh, funny stories from Nashville to you, that I would simplify the format and just present on my own uh, the month stories from our live That Time of the Month show here in Nashville. So, our format is five stories by lovely ladies and one story by a very brave token man. This month's topic is Dress to Impress, which at the moment couldn't be further from the truth for me. I'm recording this episode wearing a t-shirt and underwear. (laughs) My usual look these days. At home, at home. I'm eight months, three weeks pregnant, and I'll be honest, none of my pants fit, and I cannot bring myself to buy the next size up. So let's hope this baby comes soon, or I will just have to continue to sit around in my underwear. I am thrilled to present this month's stories, which all of the stories just so happen to be told by veterans of that time of the month's storytelling stage. The favorite, Patsy Lawson, is back. Uh, we also have Cindy Hinton Church, who always has a classic tale to tell. Uh, we have Kelly Lynn Oshlin, who was featured in our boob show last October, which was a benefit for Save the Tatas uh, and Breast Cancer Awareness. And she had a fabulous story, but we did not record that show. So you've never heard her before, but she has a wonderful story again this month. Uh, there's also Magda Underdown Dubois. And, uh, oh, and our wonderful token man this month is a guy who was featured in the recent All Guys show. And his name is Michael Bogue. And then I'll be telling a story too. So let's get this show on the road and hear some stories on this month's topic of Dress to Impress. Featuring The Big and Tall Store, David's Bridal, Glamour Shots, and the very glamorous Sun Chips. Yes, that's right. Glamorous Sun Chips. You'll see what I mean in just a little bit. But let's hear some stories. This episode of That Time of the Month is brought to you by Essential Goodness, a local indie bath and body company in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit their store on Etsy, My Essential Goodness, and get 20% off by using the code TTOTM. All of their products are 100% made with natural ingredients and fragranced only with essential oils. Our first story is by a lady I've just come to love and adore. 
She's done this show several times now. She's a native Tennessean, born and raised in Clarksville until marrying an army aviator more than three decades ago. It took her away from all that. She's lived in exotic locations like South Korea, Germany, and LA, which stands for Lower Alabama. <laughs> Last year, she moved to Hendersonville, fulfilling a two-year goal of having almost unlimited access to her grandson. She's a member of the Christian Comedy Association and uses comedy to relate her unique worldview while saving on therapy. Let's have a listen now to the fabulous Cindy Hinton Church. Okay, so I, I did email uh, Melanie and ask if I could take an opportunity to say um, that Tuesday is my birthday. Um, I am going to be a speed limit. Not the interstate. Um, and uh, for a year, I had been in my head planning a big, epic birthday party that I would never forget. Okay, so you're my big, epic birthday party. And, and because of some life changes, I'm probably not going to forget this birthday, but I'll write about it and you can laugh about it later. Um, but the thing that I wanted to say is that I'm really appreciative of my family and friends that have come out to support me because, I mean, who gets to be a grandmother reading in a coffee house? I mean, seriously, how does that happen? Um, I really, really appreciate it. And one of my guests tonight um, was supposed to be a woman named Cheryl. And, um, for, and Cheryl's not even kin to me. But she works with my cousin Sabrina, and for some reason Cheryl has taken a liking to me, as they say around here, and um, and she's been extremely ill and wanted to be here tonight but couldn't. But I want to tell you, it's a reminder that sometimes you don't know when you give people um, encouragement. And, by, and every time I step up in front of a mic, I see her face smiling back at me. And so tonight, I... Even though she can't be with us here, she's here with me in spirit, and I appreciate it. So let's get started. I'm going to deal with these uh, issues in my life under the dress to impress by putting on my big girl panties <laughs> and spanks. <laughs> Thank you. i pull it up. Pull this up. All right. It'll be fine. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Little black dress, don't fail me now. Once upon a time, in the not-too-distant past, I was a big old girl. Growing up in the South, you learn there are many things that you do not refer to by their actual name, function, or purpose. It's just poor raising to use something offensive or to suggest something unpleasant. For instance, the female anatomy has much more pleasant-sounding names such as Lulu or Noonie or Lily. I don't really know I don't really know any pleasant sounding names for the male anatomy um, I guess it's difficult to make such a thing sound pleasant <laughs> normal people those not from the south call this kind of word substitution euphemisms we call it good manners which leads me back to the big girl moniker Shades of obesity are referred to as voluptuous round or a little plump. 
the more the scales move up, the more we tend to sugarcoat an obvious truth by saying things, well, she's a little heavy set um, or big boned. But at a certain point, usually hovering around the 300 pound mark, you get tagged with big old girl. It becomes who you are. For the majority of my adult life, I felt as though I was trapped inside one of those inflatable sumo wrestler costumes. I took up a lot of space. Now don't get me wrong, even though I was a big old girl, I had a winning personality, an adorable haircut, and I used mascara. Given my size, I attempted to be fashionable. Now, Southern norms dictate that even if you are a big old girl, it does not give you the right to just give up and wear pink sweatpants or khaki-colored leggings, despite what you might see at Walmart. That's just tacky. And being tacky is worse than being obese. Therein was my dilemma, what to wear, what to wear. When I was a little girl, a specialty store called Catherine's Stout Shop existed. I hoped never to have to shop there, but since I've always been a little teapot, short, and stout, it was inevitable. Thankfully, the marketing genius convinced the company that stout was better used to describe a dark, strong beer rather than a big old girl before I became a customer. Lane Bryant, suddenly stopped being a catalog of tent-size apparel for grandmothers who obviously never left their homes to a much better fashion fit for women. Then, of course, there was the Avenue. Is it me, or is the name the Avenue just kind of offensive? I mean, why not just call it the Wide Open Road? But I digress. In all my years of largedom, I had a uniform of sorts, black dresses, and why black? Well, black is slimming, of course. My mother said it, her mother said it, her mother's mother said it. Eve, probably in the Garden of Eden, asked if fig leaves came in black. Why did they say it? Is it even true? I mean, is, it tr is attributing special qualities to a color just because of the color profiling? Is just saying black is slimming? an indication of innate racism, or at the very least insensitive? Is black dark, therefore brooding and gloomy? Are other dark colors equally slimmy? Has anyone ever given an eggplant skirt a chance? <laughs> Are orange and yellow bright and therefore more intelligent or clever in the color wheel? Has anyone ever proclaimed they were just going to throw on a little periwinkle dress and call it a night? Which brings me back to the little black dress, the backbone of all southern wardrobe, regardless of your size. Any woman over the age of 16 and with any home training at all has at her disposal a black dress to wear to a funeral no matter what time of year. I have a cousin who always travels with a black dress because you never know when you're going to be in Nebraska and the cousin of someone you know dies and you've got to drop by the funeral home. Death is sneaky like that. So no matter if you're a size 24, you feel like a size 8 when you're wearing a black dress. I guess that's where the term black magic comes from. I remember the black dress I wore when my mama died. It was August and hot as all get out. 
as we say around here, which is a euphemism for hot as hell. <laughs> the dress was made of a light, gauzy material, but it was August. I was 300 pounds, and I was wearing black. <laughs> material cannot be gauzy enough for that combination. I hated that dress. I mean, I think it would be nearly impossible to say that you love the black dress you were wearing when you were standing there saying your final goodbyes to the woman who gave you life, the woman who instilled the little black dress requirement into your DNA, it wouldn't seem right. So I hated that dress. I only wore it that one day, and then I unceremoniously pushed it into the goodwill bin without so much as a glance over my shoulder. Over the next couple of years, I ate my way through grief, and I became firmly entrenched in my big old girl classification. But I always made sure I had at least one black dress. I could put a strand of pearls on to dress it up a bit if my husband and I were going out for an evening. That never happened. Uh, if reading the obituaries dictated a trip to the funeral home, my black dress was standing steadfast in the closet waiting for the opportunity to be dressed up or covered with tiny pieces of funeral home issue tissue. Finally, I decided to make drastic sweeping changes in my life. The biggest one was to be not the biggest one in the room. I had health concerns, and I didn't want my, to think of my daughter standing over my casket wearing a black dress she too would hate. I wanted not to die before my time. I decided to have weight loss surgery, a ruin-wide gastric bypass to be quite medical about the whole thing. I did not want to be dark, gloomy, or brooding anymore. I've always felt like I might be a periwinkle girl. Heck, I might even be a red satin girl way down deep, so I gave it a shot. The weight came off quickly. My mind and my wardrobe of black dresses could barely keep up with my diminishing size. It was exhilarating and frightening. It was invigorating and exhausting. I didn't know who I was if I wasn't a big old girl. Piece by piece, my outside began to meld with my inside. My head began to adjust to my body, or so I thought. Nine months into the weight loss journey, I surprised my husband with tickets to see the Lion King at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center. That night, as I was getting ready, I instinctively reached for a little black dress. Someone had handed it down to me, and I had never even tried it on. It was a size I had not worn since college. I became convinced it would never zip. I began to perspire. My heart raced. My whole self-esteem seemed to hover over whether a metal zipper on a hand-me-down black dress would interlock as the design patent for it said it would. If it zipped, would it hold? If it held, would I look like a hefty garbage bag, shapely, shapeless, with only my winning personality, darling haircut, and mascara to accompany me to T-Pack? I could not bear to look in the mirror, so I turned my back as I slipped on the dress. The, dr the zipper went up with ease, not even a suck it in to get it over the waistband hump, snatch and pull. Only interlocking metal and holding. I turned around and I saw someone I really didn't even recognize 
Who was this woman? It had to be the magical, mystical powers of the little black dress that made me look taller and thinner than I had only been a few minutes before. I looked normal, not round, not plump, not heavy set, freaking normal. <laughs> Reaching back into the closet, I pulled out another article of clothing, a bright red silk brocade coat. I felt like Cinderella on that night if Cinderella had been a middle-aged mother of two kids in their 20s. <laughs> I loved that outfit. I don't think that I ever wore it again, but it hangs in my closet to remind me, though black is slimming, nothing says confidence like a bright red silk brocade coat. It's been almost eight years since I had the surgery. Most days, I feel like the person I want to be. Oh, I still have, and wear, the little black dress. But inside of my closet is a rainbow of colors the NAACP would be proud of. <laughs> Turns out, deep down, I am a red satin kind of girl. Periwinkle could not handle this. <laughs> Our next talented storyteller has just published her first novel, under the pen name Kelly Lynn, since 10 out of 10 people can't spell, let alone pronounce, Oshlin. <laughs> Kelly, like I said, is a veteran to the That Time of the Month stage, having shared a story during the Boob Show last October. She's lived in Nashville for 17 years and happily believes that every year in this great city is better than the last. It's good to know. Friends, family, puppy dogs, red wine, and writing are among her favorite things. Please welcome to our podcast, Miss Kelly Lynn Oshlin. When I heard the theme for tonight's show, my mind went immediately to a day many, many, many years ago when the design stars aligned perfectly for me. It was a day when my entire ensemble elicited a reaction from every single person I encountered that day. I'm talking 12 glorious hours of magic. It was one day I truly knocked it out of the park or off the runway, fashionably speaking. The year was 1993-ish. The season was fall. And I was preparing for my first business travel trip all on my lonesome. I was traveling from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to Tampa, Florida. At the time, there was a particular piece of clothing in my repertoire that I favored at the time, a cow neck sweater. And for those of you that don't know what a cow neck sweater is or don't remember, I searched the internet, scoured the internet, so that I would have a visual aid here for you tonight. So I really wanted to get you a good picture of that day that wonderful day. So I had two cow neck sweaters at the time. I couldn't tell you. They're probably maybe in your mother's closet now by now because I'm, I'm sure they were passed around handed down. <laughs> if, she, if she does the, the, the garage sale thing, I understand that. Um, but I had them in two colors. One was seafoam green and mauve, which I promise you in the 90s were popular colors. Um, so, let's see, um, I, uh, they had quarter-length sleeves, and uh, they were made from a luxurious 
cotton polyester blend. <laughs> and they were also long and oversized because I like to pair them with leggings. And um, on this particular business travel day, I had selected my mauve cow neck, and I was sporting, nay, rocking, a pair of <laughs> pink and white checkered leggings. <laughs> my hair, which was a very important part of my entire overall presentation, was its usual shade of what I like to call non-natural blonde. <laughs> and it was style big like all of us Southern girls back then, or maybe still today, I don't know. Oh yes, I looked fabulous. <laughs> the airline I was flying at the time was one called, it was a new company called Kiwi Airlines. I don't know if anybody remembers, it was founded by a group of Eastern, grounded Eastern airline pilots. And um, I found out since that it was called Kiwi, named after the flightless Kiwi bird. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, what? Um, but uh, it was a hip new airline, and I felt uh, pretty excited to be going on board down to Tampa. And one of the things they did a little differently was they handed out sun chips rather than peanuts. And I think by now everyone is familiar with the sun chip, that square rippled multigrain chip, tasty. But they were fairly new then and certainly seemed far classier than, a, than just a bag of peanuts. So I can tell you that I was feeling pretty cool sitting on the plane, three or four, maybe five carry-ons stuffed in the, in the luggage rack above me or below me, wherever I could, I could slip them, sipping a Coke and snacking on my exotic sun chips. <laughs> now once I landed, I made my way off the plane, and so my first direct human contact was at the car rental booth. I was warmly greeted by an attractive middle-aged woman at the budget rental car. Nothing but the best for me. As we talked, I remember thinking, she is really giving me her full attention. We have a real connection. She must really be impressed with how I'm dressed. I walked away from the counter feeling confident and ready to take on the rest of the day. So about an hour into my trip, I found my exit off the interstate, all using the paper-folded maps that you have to unfold, refold, reposition. Um, you know, we didn't have the electronic gadgetry. I had no blinking arrow that says, you are here, or no comforting female narrator that says, turn left ahead in 1.5 miles. <laughs> so consequently, I found myself at the gas station asking for directions. I was greeted by a young, nice-looking uh, young man, and even though it was a newly married woman at the time, I was delighted when he seemed to be checking me out. I've, I've still got it, I thought. I gave him a big smile, and I, I thanked him and continued on my way, thinking business, travel is awesome. And now I was booked at a luxurious hotel for my trip, the Holiday Inn. I parked, and I was greeted by a bellhop, and he was kind enough to take my luggage and walk with me all the way to the hotel clerk and check me in. And He seemed genuinely interested in me conversationally, and it's the South, and I'm, yeah, okay, I'm starting to get used to this. And so they're checking my reservation, and, and the guy behind the counter, he's, he's looking, and after a few moments, he's, I'm sorry, Mrs. Oshelin, I, I can't find your reservation. And he seems sincerely apologetic. And attentive, no surprise. I double-checked my paperwork, and I discovered that I had stopped at the wrong hotel. Oopsie. 
<laughs> Turns out there's another Holiday Inn just down the, the street a, a few miles further. And he said, happens all the time, Miss Oshlin, he assured me. I was obviously a little embarrassed, but to be sure, but their smiling faces put me at ease. I could tell that they were as sorry as I was to see me go. <laughs> when I arrived at my actual hotel, I was a little disappointed. It was a little smaller, no bellhop service, but I received the same level of quality treatment that I had become accustomed to that entire day. <laughs> Things were really going my way. So after check-in, I headed on up. I plopped on the bed, picked up the remote, turned on the TV, nothing happened. So I called down to reception and I said, well, I've got a problem, my TV doesn't work. You know, this is a great day, I, I want to top it off with some TV. So the maintenance guy comes up. And uh, he opened, I opened the door, he looks, he does a double take. At my appearance, and I gave him a knowing smile and said, you're welcome. <laughs> and then he promptly reached into the room, flipped a switch, and the TV came on. Oopsie again. But I look fabulous. So I felt that instead of wasting his time, I had actually done him a favor. So I had one last encounter that evening, room service. I was still feeling quite pleased with myself and thought, well, room service would be a great treat. Not just for me, but also for the person who got to bring me my food. <laughs> Again, I was not disappointed. A cute, fresh-faced kid showed up at the door. And as he laid out my food, he was grinning ear to ear. I tipped him. He thanked me enthusiastically. And I think he even gave me a little wink as he left the room. A meal never tasted better. As my day came to an end, I headed to the bathroom to prepare for bed. I also wanted to take a closer look at the countenance that had so entranced and captivated people that day. <laughs> As I looked closely in the mirror, I noticed first my, my hair had retained its poof. And as I turned back and forth, trying to decide my best angle, I spied something that gave me great pause. <laughs> I peered closer. I looked down. Resting innocently in the crook of my now infamous cow neck sweater was a single sunship. <laughs> all that time, all those people, and that sunship had been sitting there the whole time. Now I have to tell you, to this day, I still have to wonder, was it me? <laughs> Or was it the classy sunshine? <laughs>
When we arrived, an, an early 20s sales girl in a late 80s skirt suit <laughs> popped out from behind a vanity counter. She winked at me with her gluey eyelash extensions and cheerfully asked, Is someone getting married? She looked down at her sequined clipboard to check for my name on check my name on her list. Oh, actually we don't have an appointment, I confessed. Oh, her gluey lashes snapped up and she pulled her clipboard to her chest and was suddenly very dismissive. I'm sorry, but my squad of ladies are all busy tending to brides who have appointments, but you're welcome to explore the store on your own. This was fine by me. I never liked being fussed over by sales girls anyway. In fact, my mother repeatedly told me when I was growing up that she was extremely embarrassed to shop with me. If I wasn't rolling my eyes at a sales girl in the mall, I was hiding from her inside the circular clothing rack. And this was as recent as high school. <laughs> Luckily, I've grown up some, and although I still feel a twinge when I twinge of rage when I sense a sales girl shadowing me, I now reply with more human-like verbal responses, such as, oh, I'll let you know if I need anything. I even tend to use those circular clothing racks for their intended purpose, swiping through garments I shouldn't be buying. <laughs> Needless to say, when, this, when the David's Bridal squad leader told us we'd have to explore the store on our own, I was not disappointed to be ignored. As we handled bridal gowns and body bags, we noticed that they resembled supersized Ziploc bags. These jumbo bags are not the easiest to handle. They are very heavy and very tall. After losing my balance handling a beaded gown, followed by pulling a neck muscle, trying to hoist a monstrous satin gown from an upper rack, I realized I needed a spotter. <laughs> I also began to realize I needed a buffer between my mother and I someone like gluey eyelashes from the Y generation, to explain to my mother why her preferred puffy princess-style dress <laughs> would leave my fiancé questioning his proposal <laughs> as I bubbled down the aisle in the most unflattering silhouette since the umpire waist. <laughs> Which I'm wearing now. Um, <laughs> it's for pregnancies. But unfortunately for me, Miss Bedazzled Clipboard was busy leading her squad in peppy cheers for legitimate guests while I broke a sweat. Mom suggested we come back another time. I knew she was right, but I wanted to get the torture over with as soon as possible. Walking back to the car empty-handed and with a slightly sprained neck, I mumbled passive-aggressively, I'll just find something on the internet. And then I waited for my mom's reaction. My mom whipped her head around. Melanie, she shouted, you will do no such thing. <laughs> mom, people do it all the time these days. My friend did. She got her wedding dress on Zappos. They have free shipping both ways. <laughs> Melanie, please, you cannot get your dress on the internet. You will be robbing me and yourself of this experience. Plus, doesn't Zappos just sell discount shoes? It's more than shoes, Mom, I added under my breath. They also apparently have wedding dresses that smell like discount shoes. <laughs> right there in the parking lot, my mom made me swear on the graves of all of our family's deceased pets that I would not be adding a wedding dress to any virtual shopping cart. 
after cooling off a bit, I agreed to reschedule our shopping date for a time when we could make a more leisurely day of it. I also decided that I better schedule an appointment with my therapist, ASAP. On the morning of round two of body bag shuffling, I reviewed the conversation I'd had with my therapist since our last visit to David's bridal. She suggested I go over some wedding dress ground rules with my mom. I was learning that there were two parts to my intense aversion for shopping. One part was my mother constantly being over-opinionated. I agreed with that part. My therapist also pointed out that I had a part. I didn't like that part. <laughs> I was learning that I take my mom's opinion as fact. I often don't bother to think for myself. In turn, I get resentful and combined, <laughs> combined with pushy sales girls trying to meet quotas, I become overwhelmed and I take refuge inside clothing racks. <laughs> she encouraged me to make a small request of my mother. I asked that I be allowed to express my opinion about the dress first, and then she could chime in. And when she did chime in, she had to use I statements. <laughs> For instance, instead of saying, that dress is absolutely atrocious, she needed to say, I do not care for that absolutely atrocious dress. <laughs> By now, my mom and I had been shopping together for decades, and we'd always, always had very different opinions of what I should wear. I had incorrectly assumed that by now, by the time we were shopping for my wedding dress, my mom would be painfully aware of my hot buttons. However, she continued to push them anyway. My therapist had reminded me that I couldn't expect people to read my mind, but it sure would be easier if they did. <laughs> this all came to a head on day two of wedding dress shopping. As we started, I didn't even have the chance to go through these new rules of shopping sanely with mom before she was crying out, oh, please try this one on. You'll look like a fairy princess, like a little princess. Please, pretty please, pretty please. <sighs> my mother's plea did not fare well with me. The idea of looking like a fairy princess on my wedding day made me slightly ill. I've always been a bit of a tomboy inside. Even as a child, I'd have been happier doing Cinderella's chores than wearing her dress at the ball. I could feel my anxiety level rising with every comment my mom made. I wanted to run and hide inside a clothing rack. Instead, I stopped there and then and went over the wedding dress rules with my mom. She was very confused, especially the rule about the I statements. <laughs> and as I tried to explain, I was baffled as well. How had my wedding turned into one big family therapy session? I was being forced to stand on my own two feet straighter than ever. I was being driven to face my fear of conflict by an even greater fear. Terrified, I'd wind up... <laughs> with a wedding dress equivalent of the horrendous red beaded prom dress that mom had also said looked fantastic. <laughs> Should I mention that the red beaded dress had shoulder pads? Should I mention that the red beaded dress my mom said wouldn't be complete without matching red dyeable heels? <laughs> As part two of dress shopping neared its end, I found a dress that I loved. I knew it was the one. I emerged from the dressing room, and she started in. I, 
she said empathetically. <laughs> I waited for her criticism, ready to be disappointed. Then she saw my face. I can tell you like it. <laughs> well, it wasn't a total transformation of my mom's urge to opinionate, but it was a start. And that day, we both made it out of David's bridal alive. No body bags necessary. So thank you. Our next storyteller is a librarian by day and storyteller by night and weekend. Her superpowers include the ability to fall asleep anywhere at any time, breaking eggs into the pan one-handed, and finding a fairy tale or mythical archetype for almost any situation. Here's Magda Underdown Dubois. I was clothed in the almighty miracle of the clearance rack. And I, I was raised in thrift stores. If you go to our local Goodwill, not here, but in East Tennessee, they actually have a part of their training for new associates to learn my mother's name because she is there so often. Um, she also goes to the grocery store with a handful of coupons that she displays like a Vegas gambler just laying, a, laying down a royal flush and waiting for her personal jackpot to roll in. But the thing is, when we went on vacations, it was a collective effort for us to distract my mother from all of the garage sale signs that would dot the small town landscapes through which we would pass because that was her most hungry addiction every single Saturday morning of my childhood and my teen years, I was awoken at, oh my God, in the morning by this little petite woman who was already fueled by half a pot of black coffee, only sweetened by two pink packaged sweetened loaves. As I picked out my hair, she would be gathering up Nutri-Grain bars and, and getting her treasure map together of all the yard sales that she had gleaned from the daily post-Athenium want ads the night before. The next few hours would be spent comparing one grassy spread to another grassy spread and haggling to get the most momentum out of this bag of quarters and spare change that she had gathered up during the winter's off season and then squirreled away in her glove compartment. You can imagine her delight and surprise when her DPA gave her an opportunity to get professional photography at a discount from none other than Glamour Shots. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you guys know glamour shots, right? All the lights, the cameras, the idea of being a magazine model for a whole afternoon. They were the photographic archetype of the 1980s and 1990s. And here she was getting a deal that she could not pass up for her and her three daughters. It was great. I mean, okay, those of you who are not familiar, before Photoshop brought cosmetic forgery into our own homes... <laughs> This was the only place you could go to really look like those movie stars that you would see on film and on the television. 
They would apply filters and special lighting and a little bit of blurry edges on the prints themselves. And, of course, those magical brush strokes applied by the professionals to wipe away any defects you might think you might have had. And what was even better is you look like a completely different person. <laughs> awesome. And I was only 13 at the time. So I was believing, Patsy can relate to this, I believed everything Seventeen Magazine believe, uh, told me about being a teenager. We've had this conversation. And, and so this idea of, of spending a whole entire afternoon with my big sisters, Patty, when I came of age, Patty, my, my oldest sister, was already married. She was in her late 20s, and she, bless her heart, taught me very carefully about the, cho the choices and the application of makeup. And then Kathy, who came next, um, well, she, when she went to college, she left most of her wardrobe, which was great, because I kind of idolized her at the time and was stealing her jewelry anyway. So this idea of spending an afternoon with my big sisters, the big girls, and it was going to be the first outing of just us ladies since the girls had left home. I was thrilled and so excited. The day came, and Patty came to pick up me and my mom because, well, Patty drove everywhere outside of the 10-mile radius of our small town. My mother doesn't touch the interstate if she can help it. But that gave plenty of time for her and Patty to catch up on all the community happenings, i.e. local gossip. The, if you were Southern, you understand this. So I, I watched as for an hour they traced things like who was divorcing whom and how those people were now related to the people in our family. And, and it was amazing because they went from genealogy to job and school history and, of course, church attendance. Like kung fu masters going from pose to pose. There's a dragon over here, a tiger over here, and crane over here for an entire hour. It was amazing. An art that cannot be lost. Continue. Go ahead and do some more. But we got to Knoxville. We met my sister Kathy there. And Kathy was also married at that time. She had just recently graduated from UTK. And we met her at the West Town Shopping Center. My mother led her troop into the big boxy building like Dorothy leading her gentlemen into that Emerald City. We were ready to get our manes curled, our nails painted, and our eyes dyed to match our dresses. The wizards behind the shopping counters did not disappoint. They gave us innumerable choices. I mean, we could be beautiful. We could be perfect. We could be Barbie for all we cared. But let's face it, guys. It was all big lights, big hair, and big makeup. It was 1988. <laughs> Context is important. We all had, you guys remember this, the bangs that originated about halfway back on your head? Coming down, descending in a triangular pattern of doom. That then the, the maximum height was only achieved by lots of teasing and atmospheres of hairspray. So when those hair specialists got done with my sister Patty, she was doing her best Louis Mandrell impression. <laughs> a perfect circle, a satellite dish of bangs, like a blonde jewel sitting in the middle of a tiara on her head. 
the makeup they used was not exactly the subtle application that Patty had taught me. No, he was, um, how did we phrase it, Melanie? A, uh, airbrush technique you'd see on a car hood? <laughs> yes, they came at us with bright, big, bold lipsticks and these shades and colors that were not found in nature. Sultry shades lighten, uh, darkened up my cheeks and appeared above my eyes, and I was thrilled. I was now the sexy vixen of the junior high. If those preppy boys could just see me now, instead of that pale bookworm they were accustomed, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> then there was fashion the fashion consultants came at us, the consultants came at us, draping boas around our necks, pulling gloves that were, of course, elbow length up our arms, and framing lace around our faces. They had everything. I mean, my mother, who loves all things girly, to me, the teenager with a growing disdain for the color pink, they could please anybody in their lovely feminine wardrobe. It, as long as those tastes were extremely cheesecake. <laughs> um, my sister Kathy was going through a hat phase at the time. And so, well, backing up a little bit, she showed up at our brother Jack's huge Catholic wedding, shocking everyone wearing a fedora with her Sunday dress. Then at her own wedding, she attached her veil to this interesting cowboy build hat that, of course, went with her straight skirt and puffy sleeves. Now we were not at all surprised when she chose a red hat cupped teasingly over her short hair and then a red leather fringe jacket worn so it would slide seductively over one shoulder. I tell you, she, was, she would have been perfect in that Joe Cocker music video. Uh, it was my mother's turn in front of the camera next. And uh, my sisters cheered her on incessantly, telling her to take sexier poses, to pout her lips, and to stick out her chest. I swear they could have gotten her to smile a little bit wider if they had just mentioned all the savings she was getting with that coupon. <laughs> but the thing was, it was really strange. When you look at the pictures, she has dimples. Those have never appeared in any other photograph before or after. I don't know what they did. But the most mysterious thing about the whole entire afternoon was the fact that we learned we liked each other. Not just like family, because you have to, right? No, no, like friends hanging out at the mall. That was really strange. I'd never thought of this concept before in my entire life. I mean, they were my mom and my sisters. Could anybody be like more than one thing to one another? Okay, obviously. But I had just gotten the memo. And, well, those photographs went home and they went into photo albums and boxes and a, a time capsule to a particular year and its fashionable mistakes. <laughs> but have you seen the blogs that have all the JPEGs and the gifts of these things? These young people are not learning anything these days. These, they were mistakes. They, they were awful, awful, terrible things that should not be repeated. Maybe the women in my family should actually publish our guilty pleasures because it, maybe it would actually stop this idea of the off-the-shoulder t-shirt or the great big neon colors that are coming out these days. But then, of course, we'd have to tell the rest of the story. 
Um, Patty still lives in our small town, and she has now become my mother's garage sale partner. Every single Saturday morning, they, you know, synchronize their coordinates. My mother's the navigator. She got all of those yard sale addresses out of the DPA, and she's given them to Patty, who is, of course, the pilot, because she drives everywhere, out of a 10-mile radius or not. And she puts them in her fancy GPS, and they go to town. Kathy, she moved a little bit further up into northeast Tennessee in the mountains, but she still calls my mother weekly, almost clocking two hours sometimes on the phone. Because she has all these crazy adventures, well, she's still wearing different hats. She's the co-owner of my brother's contracting business. She's a state park official. She's, um, you know, the, the mother of three kids. She's a farmer of cattle and vegetables. I think those last two kind of go together, but... That's another story completely. <laughs> Me, I've a, I guess I'm my mother's big tribal partner. Um, I supplement her regular birthday presents with um, big trips. Like one time we went to the Jonesboro National Storytelling Festival, and another time we took a bus tour with all of elderly people. I was the youngest person there to New York City. Yet another story. Um, but you ask me, how could I even afford or even have time to plan any of this? I am my mother's daughter. I can stretch an Appalachian dollar till it hurts. <laughs> and I grew up to be the perfect combination of smart and sexy. I am a librarian. So I've got that ninja research mojo coming out my fingertips. All these family stories could be stuffed in boxes or forgotten, and that would be fine, but I don't think they should. I think that this is important up here. And it's not just because we need to teach our young about the dangers of flock of seagulls haircuts or anything like that. <laughs> it's because we got a BOGO deal that day. Buy one, get one free. We walked in and we paid for costumes and hair and makeup. But we got a connection, a friendship that has lasted a lifetime for free. Thank you very much for listening. We've got two more stories for you. The fabulous Patsy Lawson and our token man, Michael Bogue. So keep listening. Patsy Lawson is a descendant of two East Tennessee families, Hatfield McCoy and Green Jones. That's right, for real, you guys. And yes, she and her East Tennessee husband, Herman, are related. <laughs> uh, but I asked her how closely related, and apparently it's just distant cousins. So that's all right. Uh, she is also a licensed family therapist which she decided to do so that she and Herman could live together without shooting each other. And true to her East Tennessee heritage, she became a storyteller in order to help her students better understand odd people. Let's take a listen now to the latest hilarious story by Patsy Hatfield Lawson. Alumni. <laughs> I think it's my height. This one is called Hatfield Family Weddings. 
It was Christmas 1959 when my youngest brother made the announcement we had all come to expect. He and Judy would be married in June of 1960. This would be our first family wedding. We were also told that this was to be a fancy affair. While the marriage was not a problem for our family, the fancy part was a major source of worry. <laughs> you see, being an isolated East Tennessee farm family, we always worried that we didn't fit in with the rest of the world because we didn't know proper etiquette and having to dress in clothes we didn't usually wear was a major stressor. The thought of being with city folks always produced anxiety. The wedding announcement thrust Mama, Daddy, and me into our own set of worries for the next six months. Daddy was proud of the announcement and excited that the torch of marriage would finally be passed on to a son. Daddy had been diagnosed with angina pectoris, a heart condition that produced arm and chest pain whenever he got upset or worried. He had already given up farming in order to prevent further heart attacks. His health at the time was a major concern for the whole family. Mama and Daddy would not be allowed to chew their tobacco or dip their snuff all day. <laughs> and they would arrive back home after dark, which violated their East Tennessee rule of always get home before dark. <laughs> I was 12 at the time, hitting puberty, and excited beyond description about the wedding. I was asked to be in the wedding, up front with the bridesmaids, and would be wearing a long dress like those worn by the bridesmaids. It was the prettiest dress I had ever seen. Turquoise, scalloped hem, scooped out neck with a small collar, white pearl necklace, shoes, and a headband dyed to match the dress. This was my Cinderella moment for sure. A week before the planned wedding, the middle brother called home to say that he and his new bride would arrive a few days before the wedding and would drive us to the event. What? New bride? When? How? We knew there was a special friend, but wife? It was too much for us to absorb. It seemed that they had discussed a fancy wedding, but as it got closer, they impulsively went to the Justice of the Peace a week ago and were married with only the necessary witnesses. Things changed quickly when this story was revealed. Mama was losing two sons, Daddy was celebrating two marriages at once, and I was dealing with being cheated out of a future wedding. <laughs> to me, these weddings were my chance to see a bigger world. I was feeling totally robbed, of another big celebration. What if my last brother chose to elope too? I'd be down to only one fancy wedding. Friday, the day before the wedding, my brother and the new wife arrived. The excitement was building. Mama's clothes, the dreaded bra and hose, which she never wore, <laughs> the beige lace dress, Hat, shoes, and gloves were laid out on the bed ready. But there was anxiety all over her face. The conversation was awkward and strange as we all tried to adjust to each other, all hoping to be seen as something we weren't. This was the biggest thing that had ever happened in my whole life. The wedding was in Maryville, Tennessee, on the campus of Maryville College. 
in a small chapel that looked like a palace to me. All the groomsmen, my brothers, and even Daddy wore tuxedos. This changed my daddy. For the first time in my life, I saw how handsome he was. In my eyes, this wedding was magic. Pure, simple magic. The ceremony began. Mama and Daddy were ushered into the left front pew. Mama looked strange indeed. She walked in like a floor lamp with a new shade on her head. <laughs> she was not smiling, and I could read terror in her body. Daddy appeared okay. The bride's parents came in with an air of confidence and smiles across their faces. They knew the ropes here because this was their hometown and their third and last daughter. They smiled, nodded to friends and acquaintances as they came down the aisle. We looked exactly like what we were, dressed up hillbillies out of our comfort zone. <laughs> the ceremony began in somewhere about ten minutes into the word part. I thought I heard a sniffle. I listened carefully. It was indeed a sniffle. And I think how special that someone is honoring our family wedding with tears. Women always cry at weddings. The sniffles continued and became louder. As I tried to figure out where they were coming from, suddenly there was a loud wail, a sob, and a low moan. The preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. Who is this sobbing fool? I can't see the audience. But as the preacher told everyone to greet the new Mr. and Mrs. Hatfield, I turned around to see Daddy sobbing into his handkerchief, slinging snot and tears everywhere. It was Daddy. Mama was as white as a sheet and wanted to run, I could tell. I stand there in utter horror as the wedding party proceeds out with the bride's parents. Daddy is still sobbing and wailing. Mama now looks like a block of granite and looks faint. Outside the chapel, family members try to console Daddy. Mama is totally silent. <laughs> Following the reception, we traveled home with Daddy apologizing profusely and Mama saying she should have stayed home in the first place. <laughs> Two years passed, and the last brother announced his upcoming wedding. It would be another fancy affair in another city. I'm chosen to keep the bride's book. Daddy and Mama announced they're not attending. By this time, Daddy has been prescribed tranquilizers to keep his emotions in check so that he won't have angina attacks. Finally, Daddy consents to attend the wedding knowing that he can rely on his tranquilizers. Mama is the last to consent. The big question in everyone's mind is whether Daddy can make it through this wedding without sobbing and wailing. On the day of the wedding, Daddy's in good spirits and appeared to be doing well. But as we get closer to the time of the wedding, Daddy begins to look a bit odd. His eyes are glazed over. He has a huge smile across his face, and he speaks in a slurred tone. Mama's in the same clothes she wore in the previous wedding and more robotic and paralyzed than ever. 
I'm keeping the bride's book in the back and planning to run if Daddy sobs and wails through this wedding. <laughs> During the wedding, I can see Mama gently pull Daddy to the right to keep him from falling out of the pew and pushing him to the left to keep him from falling on her. But he's not crying. The wedding ends with no sobs and wails. As Daddy walks down the aisle, he has a giddy smile and waves to everybody on both sides of the aisle. At the reception, he's the life of the party. We all congratulate him on his success, and as we drive home, Daddy confesses that instead of taking one tranquilizer, he took three, just to make sure he did not cry. <laughs> Until I was 40, I could not tell this story because it was too painful. Now it's my favorite daddy story because I understand how very sensitive my father was and how despite his attempts to remain unaffected by his feelings, he could not hide them. I now think this was one of his best traits. We've come to that point in the show, our final story, and this one's by our token man, Mr. Michael Bogue, who has a very colorful background. He's been a white rafting water guide in Alaska, an options trader on Wall Street, a poker dealer in Vegas, and his most glamorous job is his current one, working in a cubicle. <laughs> but don't worry, he's plotting his escape, just like Andy in Shawshank Redemption. For the day next March, when he voluntarily becomes homeless for six months to hike the Appalachian Trail. Michael is a really prolific writer, having created a successful blog in Las Vegas that had over 500 readers a day. He performed a couple months back with the Boys Will Be Boys crew. Without further ado, here's Michael Bogue. How's it going, everybody? How about for the ladies tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Alright, I think uh, Cindy kind of stole a little bit of my thunder. She didn't clear her story with me, but you know what? <laughs> We're going to go with mine, and y'all can decide who's better. But that's okay. <laughs> Anyhow, um, here we go. I went shopping the other day for clothes, and all, although I didn't really buy anything, it was an enjoyable experience nonetheless, because you see, for the past... 20 plus years, my wardrobe has come from the big and tall store. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that type of retail experience, a little background may be necessary. <laughs> At first glance, being a little bit overweight not only requires larger clothing, that's the one thing the normal size world sees, but the, one of the other side effects is, is, is a disdain for doing certain things in public, and shopping is one of those things. I suppose that's why it's easier for gentlemen of stature to have their own place to shop, away from the prying eyes of strangers, rather than dedicating a portion of a valuable floor space in normal stores for their larger-than-life customers. Now, the Internet has alleviated most of the anxiety that goes with shopping for clothes when one does it out of need instead of for pleasure, but it only goes so far. Yeah, it's private, and nobody can see you doing it, and 
There's no judgmental sales clerk unconsciously looking at the size on the tag and then looking up at you and then back at the size on the tag. <laughs> but buying clothes without being able to try them on first presents its own set of obstacles, as you can imagine. Besides that, there's an unfortunate financial component to consider. A pair of dockers that would cost a skinny guy about $34.99 would cost me about $55, bucks, plus another $5.99 if I wanted them hit. Because when your inseam is only about half the distance of your waist size, your pants generally have to be custom made. Even then, you're not actually getting a name brand pair of pants like the aforementioned dockers. It's usually some sort of Indonesian knockoff that fall apart after eight washes. Or if you sneeze, whichever comes first. <laughs> now, now, shirts are a little easier to find, but if you want one with buttons, there's an upcharge for that, too. Kind of like getting power windows on an economy car. Uh, a few extra ounces of material tend to run upwards of 15 bucks by the time it becomes a finished product, and then you're faced with trying to find something to wear that's not hideous. Unlike this sassy ensemble you see before you. <laughs> that brings us to the other problem with shopping at the big and tall. Besides being too expensive and generally of low quality, most of the selection available is just too god-awful to consider wearing in public. Someone once said that life is too short to wear ugly clothes, and I'm firmly convinced that whoever said it was a skinny person who pushes the mail cart around at GQ headquarters. <laughs> now, it's not enough that the universe punishes you for being chunky. But part of your sentence is being forced to wear clothes that are already on the trailing edge of fashion, if not downright ugly. Now ask yourself this. Have you ever seen an overweight person say, man, they dress really nice. I love their wardrobe. No, probably not. It's because when you're a triple extra large, in addition to all of the hundreds of other daily reminders that you're different, and not in a good way, you are condemned to less than ideal wardrobe choices. And you'd think that expensive clothes should at least be stylish, but you'd be wrong. I suppose that it may be just a matter of perception. It seems to me that most of the clothes to choose from would be fine if I were an extra in a hip-hop video. But since I have to go to the office... <laughs> but since I have to go to the office every day in order to pay for the wardrobe, it's tough to separate the business casual wheat from the urban casual chaff. But all that is behind me now. In the past year, in addition to losing over 160 pounds, I've lost... I've lost an entire hardcore porn's worth of X's from my shirt size. <laughs> and, and because of that, I can now get my clothes off the rack. Now, it may seem like an insignificant thing to those of you who've never given a second thought to the clothes-buying experience, but for someone who's been on the outside looking in for the past two decades, it's kind of an extra-large deal. The turning point came for me one morning when I had to punch another hole in the belt that's slowly making its way around me twice. It's an expensive piece of leather, and I'm determined to get as much use out of it as possible. So every month or so, I take out the cordless drill, create a visual but measure of success every bit as significant as the hash marks on the kitchen wall of a growing family. So while, I, while my pants may be baggy like all of the cooler, younger, fat kids, I realize that it's probably time to clean out the closet, donate to Goodwill, and think about improving my wardrobe. So I took that afternoon off of work, telling my boss a little white lie about going to the doctor, when all I really had planned was a bit of retail therapy. I drove over to the mall, anxiously wondering if I'd really cross that magical Rubicon into the world of skinny people. Well, at least as skinny as defined by me. The only evidence I had was a belt that was too long, 
pants that were too baggy, and a closet full of white Oxford shirts that hung to my knees if I kept them untucked. <clears throat> Not knowing what to expect, I left my wallet in the car, unprepared to deal with either disappointment or buyer's remorse, regardless of which way the afternoon went. Now, like the first Apollo astronauts to circle around the far side of the moon, I was on a mission of discovery, not colonization. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to see what would happen if I went there. I had no intention of planting my flag and collecting a bunch of moon rocks. Now, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous in the first store I visited. And I may have been a little too quick with the no to the first sales clerk who asked if they could help me. I figured that if I got pinned down, I could always say I was shopping for a gift. That way, if I couldn't find anything to fit, I could move along and pretend that their selection just wasn't up to my standards. At least that's what I told myself. I pretended to be casually browsing, but in truth, I was desperately searching for a certain size that I estimated would fit the new me. Nobody bothered me while I dug through the racks of shirts, hoping to find something, anything I could wear. Still a long way from the textbook definition of average, I figured whatever would fit me would still be at the far end of the size spectrum, but persistence paid off. I found a decent-looking shirt in a size that interested me, and in a momentary fit of optimism, I grabbed another one just like it, only one size smaller. Now, I may have been even more nervous walking to the fitting room than I was walking into the store a few minutes before, and I had the passing thought that the sales staff must have thought the only guy sweating on a 60-degree day had to have been a shoplifter. <laughs> but I wasn't sure if that was the old me thinking that they were just worried that the fat guy heading to the fitting room was going to ruin merchandise by trying to force 10 pounds of sausage into a 5-pound shirt. <laughs> I closed the... <laughs> I closed the fitting room door, looked in the mirror, and told myself that even if these clothes didn't fit, hey, there's always next month. I said a quick non-religious prayer to an unpronounceable deity that I wasn't embarrassing myself, and I chose the bigger of the two shirts. It fit. It wasn't tight, and it wasn't binding, and I didn't look too ridiculous in it. In fact, I thought I looked pretty good. But just as my definition of skinny is somewhat skewed, so is my definition of well-fitting. So I tried on the smaller shirt just to see. It fit also, but it wasn't quite as comfortable as the first one, so I changed back anxious to see myself in normal clothes. Now, like the pounds that I'd lost in the past year, those burdens of self-doubt and self-consciousness that I've been carrying disappeared and were replaced by the newly discovered weightlessness of self-confidence. Now, it was, a, it was an amazing transformation, but one that nobody but the guy in the fitting room mirror could see. Armed with a new attitude about life in general and clothes shopping in particular, I bounced between several stores that afternoon, hauling piles of merchandise with me into the dressing rooms that I had absolutely no intention of buying. <laughs> Finally understanding what women feel like when they shop for shoes. <laughs> I must have tried on dozens of things in several stores that day, sometimes striking out, but other times I was pleasantly surprised. And while it may not have been the most masculine thought I ever had, while carrying an armload of hangers to the fitting room, I couldn't help but liken myself to Julia Roberts on her Rodeo Drive shopping spree <laughs> with her hair. But the opportunity to say, big mistake, to a salesperson never really presented itself. <laughs> After a couple hours, the novelty wore off, and I was disciplined enough to go back to the car, not to fetch my wallet, but to drive away, knowing that the next time I had some extra cash, I won't have to spend it all on clothes because I have to, but because I wanted to. Those jackals at the big and tall have a pretty good racket going, 
And sadly, they are a necessary evil, but I've moved on from them. I don't have to shop there anymore. Now, it may be a small step in the grand scheme of things, but to me, it was a giant leap. And that's a wrap on this month's topic of Dress to Impress. Don't miss next month's show, The Mother of a Show featuring stories about mom. New episodes of the podcast are out on the 28th day of the month. Unless we're late, that is. Thanks for listening. Happens every month. It's the neatest storytelling at its sweetest.